out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of singer-songwriter Amy Ray, who's got a new solo album out titled If It All Goes South. She's had a prolific solo career. This, in fact, is her 10th solo album and obviously has been a member and still is a member of the Indigo Girls who are touring throughout the winter of... Uh, 2022 and also into new, the new year but you'll find out more about that in this interview towards the latter half anyway let's get down to it shall we so after several minutes of casual but interesting chat we got down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years amy it's a classic tell us more tell us now well i was born in 64 so i think i think you know my first Musical awareness was more like, uh, well, Elton John was one of the first records I bought. Um, Don't Shoot Me, I'm Only the Piano Player. Right. When I was a kid, little kid. Um, But my sister was listening to kind of the Woodstock, you know, Rolling Stone uh, era. I don't know, Richie Havens, Janis Joplin, and then the Southern, like Leonard Skinner and Allman Brothers and stuff. So I heard a bit of that. And then I listened to songwriters for a while. And when I was in high school, I discovered that's when I discovered The Clash and Bowie and and then later on The Replacements and Husker Du and all the stuff that really influenced me uh, in my soul. You know, like it was like Patti Smith. And I was like, oh, that's OK. Now now I'm hearing it, you know, because I love all the songwriters too, James Taylor and Carole King and, you know, the greats, Ricky Lee Jones and all these people in the States. But I. I really, I think what spoke to me on a soul level was that kind of energy and passion of things that were going against the grain, so to speak, you know, and I, when I started out doing punk rock records, solo from Indigo Girls, it was really to answer that feeling. And then I kind of moved into country for some reason, which is what happens sometimes. And I'll, I knew a lot of actually bands like the Mekons, you know, who became country artists after that, and I think the label Bloodshot Records out of Chicago at the time really influenced me because they had a lot of that uh, country punk kind of stuff. And so later in life, I mean, you know, when I was right before I started sort of making solo records. And so that kind of, I ventured off into that. But my earliest years are more, I mean, even the Carpenters, you know, they're more like singer songwriter um you know, stuff that my parents were listening to and, and things like that. But, yes. Well, actually, it's interesting yeah. you mentioned the Carpenters because, um, because I, well, I suppose I was influenced. I had an older brother who was into prog rock. So I thought he was marvelous. So I sort of listened to all his prog rock records. I kind of wished he'd been into better music, really, to be honest. Um, <laughs> so I, I know the work of, you know, Yes and Genesis and Wishbone Ash, Barkley James Harvest. And the solo work of Rick Wakeman, which is just like, why, why? But he did have two albums that I used to also sneak into his room and play. One was um, Sergeant Pepper and one was Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. And I, they had huge influence because at the time it was probably 74, 75. And so they weren't, there was no critical, you know, like critically acclaimed as they are now, which is, which is obviously 
you know, I mean, the Beatles had only just broken up then. You know, it's kind of weird to think they had yeah. only been broken up about three or four years, but they seemed like such a different period. And and then you had, uh, you know, the Goodbye Yellow Brick Road that had just come out. And, you know, Elton was just like, who is Elton John? What, what a strange character, but amazing songs. And there's a song on the last song on side four of Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, Harmony, which is just still one of my favourites of all time. So, um, it- Me too. I used to sit, I remember I used to lay on my bed and listen to that whole Double record, front to back, you know, and Harmony and Me, Pretty Good Company. I loved that song so much, you know. I would, like, sit on my little bed and learn the chords, play guitar to it. He was, you know, for me as a songwriter, um, him and Bernie Taupin were, you know, huge fixtures in my life for years and years. I mean, I could do any song, any lyric for a long time, probably for, I mean, up until Blue Moves, I really knew everything, you know. And then I kind of lost a little bit of track, but, but yeah, totally... Yeah, he was kind of a glam rocker. You he know? was, yes, he's yeah. absolutely. He he embraced it all, and he's yeah. very flamboyant. <laughs> but it's interesting you mentioned the Carpenters because my brother and my brother, my parents used to listen to radio too, which was kind of easy listening radio. Mm. And the Carpenters were one of those bands, and then they got a greatest hits of the Carpenters. And I was absolutely mesmerized with these lyrics, like "Rainy Days and Monday," and and I say goodbye to love. I mean, it was full of melancholy, and I thought. Well, of course, I like Joy Division and the Smiths after being brought up on the Carpenters because it's all about alienation, loneliness, and heartbreak, isn't it? And <laughs> it's all know, the same. <laughs> all the, and then you mentioned Husker Du, which was one of my favorite bands in the eighties. And then I love Bob Mould's solo work as well. And that was all about relationships and breakup. And you know, you, could you be the one? Which was from that classic album, you know, and those ballads that he did or they did on. Um, the album before warehouse you know i'm far i'm far too down or i can't remember sorry know. somehow and yes uh, yeah, yeah but there was a couple of acoustic ones on the the album before warehouse and they were just really depressing songs and i love them because obviously that's what you do isn't it really yeah. so <laughs> you embrace the you embrace the sadness so when yeah. when you got to sort of for us 1979 you know thatcher margaret thatcher gets in and then we have the falkland war and the Greenham Common, you know, there was the threat of nuclear war, there was the miners' strike, you know, a few years later we had, you know, Red Wedge and, you know, it was very political. What was the, what was your 16, 18-year-old period like? Well, we had, you know, we had Reagan uh, in office and let's see, I was 16 in 1980. So Ronald Reagan, I think, was in, on office and I was at a public school and I had just started playing with Emily to make the Indigo Girls. And we were in high school and, you know, I was very close with my teachers and was really into English. And um, but I was also really into like student government and sort of like finding the answer to how to get everybody to get along in school, you know, because <laughs> yes. we had all the different divisions and cliques. And I was really determined, I think, to like see the world in a way that wasn't so limiting, you know, and then I was starting to feel the kind of my insides awake as far as like becoming gay and being identified as queer. And, but Reagan was, I, you know, I was kind of a young Republican at first because my parents were, and I was very, I don't, I kind of, I was sort of starting to become rebellious, but like still hanging on to this thing where I was following in their footsteps in a way. So you know, I was driving a Camaro with a Reagan bumper sticker on it and things like that. <laughs> and then I think, you know, in like 81 and 82, 
I really like woke up. I think I had a history teacher that really influenced me. And he told, you know, we talked about sort of what we weren't learning in school, you know, and that's when I sort of started questioning authority and, and everything, you know, and Emily and I were playing together and Indigo Girls were sort of playing in clubs and stuff. And, you know, we kind of went off to separate schools for a while and then came back and the world was sort of, you know, it was in an upheaval in some ways. I think there was a lot of, I was living in a South that was still very sheltered and there was a lot of racism and the Atlanta, I don't know if you know about the Atlanta child murders, but they were, had been going on since 79 through like 81. And it was a big deal in our city because all these black kids went missing and they sort of pinned it on this guy that might not have even been the guy that did it. And there was still a lot of like clan activity and it was kind of crazy. Like, mm. but, but we were very sort of sheltered from it in some ways, you know, and a lot of history around that time, I learned it by going back and looking at it rather than really having known it at the time it was the backdrop and it was definitely influencing me, but I don't think I understood it all, you know? And I think, um, what came out of that is when I looked back, I was like, wow. And it made me, I think have even more energy for just fighting the the good fight, you know, and sort of trying to work for anti-racism and, and really that being like a main focus for me in life, you know, cause I'm from a, a, about five or six generations of Southerners and there's a lot to answer for in that way. And Georgia is really a kind of a mixed bag and we have a very, like an incredible civil rights community that started early, you know, in the really the thirties and forties and onward. But we also have this other, this polarized opposite, you know, which is the kind of clan contingent, you know, that's still there, um, still here, you know, and in the form of white nationalism and, and um, just all the white supremacist groups and sort of the militias. Um, so I think that, I came up through a time when you could look the other way pretty easily if you were middle class, right? you know, but you also, you know, had a sense inside that something wasn't quite right. If you even felt, if you even had any clue, there was like sort of this underbelly all the time of like, something's not, not right here, you know, and I can't figure it out. And then you go out and you do research and you figure it out, you know, and you get involved with the right people and, Yes, I can't remember. There was a couple of really influential films during possibly that period, but I haven't seen them for decades. Mississippi Burning, which was one of those ones which really sort of shocked us. And there was quite a lot of, I think the 80s did start bringing out films that highlighted these things that had happened only quite recently. And it was like, it made you feel really uncomfortable and um, depressed. And also it was kind of interesting. You mentioned, um, you know, because the, the, I did an interview at the weekend with a guy called David or Dave Rimmer, who did who wrote a book on Culture Club in the 80s and a bit of Duran Duran mm. in the 80s. And we were you know, discussing the book and, and that period. And, and it was like being gay was still a really big thing. You forgot that, you know, the papers would say we've got something on you, you know, <laughs> and we're going to destroy your life. And it was like and you think, oh, I forgot. Yes, that was a big thing that, you know, footballers absolutely you know but they're musicians there was a gray area still and you know people in politics and any any field of life and you're thinking gosh gee whiz that was that wasn't that long ago was it really but then the 80s things did start happening and um yes you know we we all got a bit confused and 
I don't know. People, people kind of. There was a lot of political kind of push from the from the indie world in the eighties in the UK, anyway, which made made a lot of people sort of think about things and protest. And there was a lot more kind of, I suppose, talk about you know certain issues. And also the eighties. I do remember there we suddenly had people like Everything But the Girl, and then we had Michelle Shocked, and then we had Suzanne Vega and Tracy Chapman. So suddenly there was this kind of we had our own soundtrack during that period as well, which kind of which was quite. A relief, really. We had the Smiths, who were my favorite band of all time. <laughs> I know. Yeah, I mean, I I think the '80s. You know, I remember um, in the later '80s, a lot of my friends were working, you know, with ACT UP and a lot of you know HIV AIDS based you know sort of protests, and it was it, it was an exciting time to be gay in when you could find allies. You know, it was either very scary or very exciting you know because you if you found allies and you could voice your protest and sort of speak up and feel brave about it there was an energy to that that made you feel like okay you know and i think for us music you know when we started venturing out into clubs and and i kind of realized i kind of realized i'm full on i'm gay like i'm really gay you know <laughs> and emily kind of realized it a little bit later and then we really came out in the early, like probably not 91. I mean, I was out, but Indigos weren't talking about it yet. And Emily sort of, at that point, she was, she was still reticent because she felt like it would put us in sort of a niche and she was right, but like, I mean, it's not a bad niche to be in, you know? Okay. So, so we, you know, we agreed, we sort of had a moment where we were like, you know, in agreement and it was, I, I have to say like there were, the, the, you know, Michelle shocked and, Suzanne Vega and even someone like Elton John, even Bowie, for me, David Bowie was really a person that kind of uh, liberated me a bit because he was um, just always reinventing himself and and was on a spectrum of sexuality and gender that was kind of more what I felt, you know, and more what I related to. And so I think for me, th there was stuff coming out from across the, you know, the pond that was, you know, for me emboldening and then also we had you know our heroes here but i, I listen to everything but the girl all the time <laughs> <laughs> and lloyd cole and the commotions and aztec camera and the cult and you know culture club and i you know it's it, it was uh boy george was a huge um figure for me and george michael too and so there was a lot for us to celebrate i guess but uh, but it was very scary you know we were I guess we weren't really, yeah, you know, you don't think now it's like so different. I mean, it's different for, it's, I mean, under, in the, in the States, I don't know what it's like over there, but in areas that are more rural and kind of not as cosmopolitan, it's still pretty hard to be gay. So, you know, those, those kids have a rough, a rough time of it um, when they come up, but we have so much, so much more vocabulary and, so much more reach with the internet and stuff. So we can really, you know, we can uh, have allies even with when we don't live near them, you know? Yes. And when you, I mean, obviously the Indigo Girls, amazing chapter in life and, and so important and so many amazing records. What was the kind of the, the reason for becoming more of a solo artist at this stage? Well, in 2000, I, well, I started a record label in 1989 and just put out records by friends that were like in more in punk rock bands or in alt kind of alt rock or even jazz 
uh, kind of things. I did. A, I even did a hip hop record and I just wanted to, I just love music. So I just wanted to have like a little record label and put stuff out. And we had like festivals and, you know, uh, variety nights of, of different music and spoken word and stuff and political activism. And then around 2000, I had started playing jamming with some of uh, some of the different bands that I knew through that label, through my label. And I was just like, oh, maybe I'll make a record, you know, of all the people that I love to play with. So I basically just did it because I wanted to collaborate with um, different friends I had met through the indie scene. So Team Dresch and the Butchies and Kate Schellenbach from Lessis Jackson and Josephine Wiggs from the Breeders and Joan Jett and some other guys that were in some punk bands out of Alabama. And I just started making songs and the Rocketeens from Atlanta. I started making songs with these little very unknown kind of punk bands and made a record of it. And then after that, I was like, oh, that's really fun. <laughs> and I toured alone with an opening kind of band that was also my backup band and just drove around in a van. And I just really liked the, uh, I liked the difference in the kind of the process of it and being totally independent yes. and um, just kind of taking care of myself. And then it started to be that I started writing songs that just felt more toward geared towards the collaborators that I was with at the time. So it could be like at the time it was different rock musicians and punk musicians. And then I met some country players that I really liked. And so I started writing in that vein and, you know, it's just, for me, it's all about having a different collaboration. And some of the stuff on my earlier records was more, I was figuring out my gender and sexuality sort of dysphoria of like a lot of different things. And what I wanted to talk about seemed more singular and focused in some ways than yes. Than the duo, because when Emily and I sing with each other, it sort of becomes us, you know, and which is great um, and very magical for me, but not, but, but different, you know, and I just wanted to have that other thing happening too. So yes. yeah, it's, it's, it's about collaboration, I guess. It's, it is a bit like Bowie really, wasn't it? Always liking to play with different people for a different album, which I kind of understand now because you just, you see what he did and the influence it had and sometimes probably thought actually I'm who am I going to work with and what what's what's this next project and who's the producer and I think that's been you know I think it's kind of interesting I could imagine it as an art as an artist it just must be a bit more exciting going into the office or going into the studio thinking okay this is going to be a little bit different because I noticed your your early albums like prom are really punky aren't they they're, they're... <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah totally I mean it was the, the I was playing with a lot of scrappy scrappy musicians that I love. It was all people I loved. Like it was all like, Oh God, I would love to play with this person or that person. And that's what it was. I mean, it was just based on that, you know? Yes. And when you, I mean, just kind of curious, a song like Kid Fears, can you remember how that song came together and, and, and the, the way it sort of, you know, the process, the creative kind of journey of that song? Cause it's quite an epic one, isn't it? <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess. Yeah. Um, well, at the t I mean, I just rem I remember writing it in. I lived in this little apartment, and um, I had all these friends that would kind of come and go, um, depending on what I, life was kind of wild back then, and partying and kind of chaos. But I also knew a lot of people that were going through a lot of uh, kind of deep stuff with having with dealing with like old sort of child abuse issues or um, domestic abuse or. Uh, having been um, attacked or molested. And I was thinking about all those kind of hard things 
and what you imagine as a kid is is kind of scary is really so different for me than it might have been for some other kid or we're all different right and i was just thinking about what are your fears basically and i was kind of thinking about specific friends of mine and just is very uh, obscure lyrics but i don't know they just came out i i you know years after the fact i was like god i can't even i don't know why i used that phrase what was i talking about <laughs> but you know whatever um and then when emily and i learned it um you know sort of down the line we met michael stipe and um the guys from rem and we were recording at a studio that they worked at a lot in athens and um so we just we kind of started knowing each other and then we got signed to epic and it was like a weird thing where we got signed to this bigger record deal and we got hooked up with the producer for rem and so it all just sort of fell together that we would do this song and Michael would sing on it and it would be this dramatic sort of thing, you know, and that's what happened. <laughs> and, and to, and it's, you know, it's, it's the song for me still lives in the, in my head. I still hear Michael, you know, in it when I'm, yes. when I'm playing it because he really defined it in some ways for me and, and Pete Buck playing some guitar, you know, on that record, Peter Buck played some guitar on songs and we did a song with REM as well. And I, I still think about that ear, sort of that whole setting, you know, cause it was, it had a very big impact on us, on Emily and I, and it also made our career, you know, because they took us on tour right. and they showed us the ropes um, in a way that was very, um, has carried on through our whole career, like how you treat opening bands and you treat them really well. And just sort of the care that you take in running your business to be, I guess, just like socially, socially responsible and sort of kind and, and have integrity. And they were truly that. And they really showed us, I mean, we already were on that road to some degree, but we hadn't met any bands that were that big that still operated in that way, you know, cause Pearl Jam was just coming around and we didn't know those guys yet. And they, they sort of ended up being also mentors to us as far as running a business and, and sort of, there was a woman that worked for them, a political activist that really became a guru to us. And so I think, yeah, I think like jumping off from that song, but that song for me is evocative of all this stuff, you know, in a time period. And so when we play it, I'm in my head, I'm, you know, it's all rolling around in there. Yes, there's, there's a lot of emotional <laughs> kind of baggage. I don't know. Yeah, that, that <laughs> yes, is, exactly. might not be the right word. But the it other was. song, which I'm just curious about, because it is another epic, Touch Me Fool, which is just, it kind of goes into this overdrive with some amazing bait, uh, drum solo and just gets excitable and carried away. But it's absolutely amazing. What was What was kind of the story behind that particular track? I was... I had that record, we made that record after a period of touring a lot and just being on the road all the time. And I started to just feel that angst of like missing of all the things I missed, you know, like people, friends passing away while I was gone from overdoses or whatever, all the things that were happening in Atlanta and relatives dying and you know, people getting married and having babies. And it just felt like, um, I don't know, 
I felt like life, the sensual sort of and tactile experience of life to me was something I was missing um, because I was having this life. It's the typical musician story. You know, I was having a life on the road, but I wasn't having this this relationship with with my roots, you know, in a way. So it was about kind of waking up and realizing, you know, one day that I had missed a lot, you know, and that some of the touring almost felt like a dreamscape because I was so tired and not present enough in any of it, you know? And so, and I also felt a lot of, um, I just felt kind of hemmed in, in a way, you know, and I wanted to rock <laughs> and, I just, and I didn't feel like we were able to sometimes enough, you know, because of kind of what we were cast as. And I didn't want to just be acoustic folk musicians, even though I have a lot of reverence for that. I wanted to be whatever we want to be, you know, and I didn't want to be just this thing, this one thing. I wasn't used to that sort of singular experience or definition. So it was also kind of a prototype for that, you know, venturing into the world of rock and roll, you know, yes, <laughs> with my Stratocaster and everything. So, yeah, so that that's kind of what, where that came from. Yes, I mean, it's just an amazing song and just always one of those ones that really catches you because, it, A, it's quite a long song, I think. It's about it is minutes. quite long. <laughs> self in, it, it's a very it self-involved song. It's a, <laughs> yes, it's quite amazing. So when you when you sort of took the moment to go, for, you know, to, to, to have a solo career as well, was that quite a big decision in, in your life or were you just thinking, actually, I've got nothing to lose because I need <laughs> to do something different? Uh Probably a little bit of both. I mean, I probably just was, you know, I think at the time there were some songs I had written that Emily was like, I'm not really down with that song. I, I think the song Lucy Stoners was taking a pot shot at, at, at Jan Winter from Rolling Stone and Rolling Stone magazine for misogyny and homophobia. And, you know, and Emily was like, I don't know if I want to sing that. And I'm like, oh, come on. And she's like, no, nah, I don't know. And so it's like, I can't really relate to it. So I was like, all right, that was like the first kind of inkling of like, maybe I need to do a solo record. Yes. <laughs> and then I had, a, and then I had a producer that we worked with Peter Collins, who speaking of Genesis had worked with them a lot and Rush had worked with them a lot, but um, Peter is a Brit and he, but he had said a couple of times, he's very honest with me. He, he had heard a couple of songs and he'd be like, have you ever thought of doing a solo album, Amy? And he didn't mean it in a nice way. <laughs> he meant it like there's these songs that don't work for Indigo Girls and maybe not even up to the standard in some ways, you know? So I was like, that sort of planted the seed in a way. And so I think when the idea came, it was a bit dramatic. I had to tell Emily I was going to do it. But for me, it had been brewing and I had been jamming with all these other bands that I really loved. And so it just felt like very natural to kind of go to someone's house who had a studio and make four songs and go to somebody else's house and make another two. And I mean, I traveled around with my tapes basically and played with a bunch of different people and recorded stuff at all these different like kind of garage studios. Yes. So it was a long process. So it wasn't this like, bam, you know, here's a solo record. So I think Emily had time to adjust because I would be talking about it. And she's cool. Like, she's very, like, I mean, the reason why we're together for so long is I think we just know it's important to give each other that space, you know. Yes. So, but I think when I went on my first solo tour, it was with the band called The Butchies that were three women 
you know, badass like punk musicians, full on punk rock. And they played a set and then I would play with them. And it was a pretty successful tour, like clubs, you know, nothing big, but for clubs, it was successful. Right. And it felt very, it woke me up, I guess, in a way, because I was like, oh, I really, I really like the club thing still. Like, I really like the van. And I like it when, like, if the amplifier breaks down, I know how to fix it, you know, kind of, I don't know. I just like the autonomy of it and the uh, self-reliance, you know, the reliance on myself um, and the resilience too, because, you know, when bad, if you get a flat tire or this or that, you know, you're not on a tour bus. So you, you have to like learn how to fend for yourself, yes. which was refreshing to me. And I get energized by that. I don't like being so removed from the experience all the time. It feels, yeah. it feels um, strange to me. And I think that's also when I wrote Touch Me Fall, I was feeling that too, you know? And I think, you know, three years later, I started making solo records. So it's like, that's how I got back in touch. And then it helped me in the Indigo Girls too, because I brought all that energy and knowledge and kind of re new resources into what we were doing in a way. And it made me excited about that too. So it was yes, a good, absolutely. It was I mean, a good thing. It must have been exciting working with people like Joan Jett, though, because... Um, oh, God, I love her. <laughs> she's, so, like, she's, yeah, so she's cool. just like, I just, I can't, I'll never forget, like, we were at this, like, studio in Brooklyn, New York. I had, you know, gone up to New York to just get this track with her, right? I had to, like, track, I mean, I knew her, but I had to, like, you know, get her into a place, you know? And she, like, rolled out of this, like, black car service, you know, you know, the, like the limos, but they're like sedans in New York, you know, and she rolled out of it. And it was kind of like Cheech and Chong, like a whiff of pot smoke rolls out with her, you know, and she's just like, hey, Amy, you know, like really super <laughs> cool, you know, and just came in and like nailed it. And, you know, and then she left and I was like, that was cool, you know, and we had jammed together a couple of times at another friend's loft. Um, so I knew her, but she's always a bit of a mystery to me, even when I see her now, you know, it's always... There's always a, like, I just saw her play a couple of years ago. Actually, during the pandemic, she played at this outdoor place. And I went back and said hey to her. And I don't know, there's just always like a shroud of mystery with her. It's like um, Susie Sue or something, you know, like where you're yes. like, you know, you want to like poke through it a little bit. And, um, but she has got a heart of gold, that Joan Jett. I mean, you won't meet a nicer, just, she's just one of the most generous, like rock solid, Long Island, just, I don't, it's like this certain New Yorker type that's like, I, it's like the salt of the earth kind of people. And she is that, you know, she may have all this artifice, but she's just solid, you know, yes. and like a good, a good person. Because on the, on the, your, your early solo work albums, especially you, you have amazing cast of musicians. Was that quite hard work? Would you have, looking back on it, preferred to have just kept it as much more of a band for one album and then have a slightly different band for another album rather than such a sort of wide variety of people to liaise with and and sort of contact and try and, you know, sort of sort out bits and pieces with them? Well, for me, it was more, it didn't feel like hard. It was hard work, but it didn't feel like work. It, I felt more like an Alan Lomax sort of musicologist field recording kind of person. And I was going around and capturing these voices and I just happened to be singing with them and playing with them. And so I would take my, the stuff, the tapes that I had or ADATs or whatever format I was using for this particular song, 
because we were there was a lot of transition and formats going on too so that was a little hard mm. <laughs> but we would i would just take all my stuff from one place to the next and then i had to make it all work together but i quite enjoyed that i mean i i really i'm a documenter i like going and traveling to where somebody is and capturing them in their natural environment you know and for Joan Jett that's Brooklyn New York or or a loft in New York City and for other bands that I've worked with it might be Eagle Rock you know out in LA and or in Alabama with a punk band so and even now even though I have a country, a country band that I've been with for 9 years I mean they're kind of a lot more than country they're sort of super versatile but I always bring in all these other musicians too, you know, or go to where they are and capture them. But for this particular record, this the newest one, I recorded to tape and wanted as many of the guests to be there and going to tape as possible. So there were only a couple of people that did it remotely to digital and then I dumped it onto the tape. But I, yeah, I for Prom and for Stag and even for... Lung of Love and Didn't It Feel Kinder. I did a bit of the wandering around and finding people, but I, I have to say, I, I yeah, I really love doing that. I mean, if I had another life, I'd probably go, you know, do field recordings of people. Yes, we, we <laughs> love Alan, Alan <laughs> Lomax. Is just and also, yeah. I love archiving. I think archiving is just the great thing, you know. Discovery. I'm with you. I am with you on that. That is the most fun in the world. Yeah. Yes, I know. Just kind of realize that someone might have made it and thought, no one's going to be interested. And you think, yes, someone is. It's me. Yes. It's been 50 <laughs> years old. It's sitting here. No one cares. But I'm really fascinated. And I just kind of have that, God, who, you know, where were they? What was the weather at that time? You know, well, who was around? You know, what was the landscapes? You know, I just, you know, I get kind of carried away really with that. That's cool. But, yeah, I know, I love it. But this, the new album, which has just come out, which is fantastic, if it all goes south. So this is obviously recorded all... Did you write any of it during your the great lockdown period? Was this... Yeah, yeah, I did. I wrote a lot of it during that period. And there were three of the songs that I actually put out as digital recordings during that period. Um, a song called Tear It Down, which was really inspired by sort of Black Lives Matter and and a couple of local groups down here in the South that were working to dismantle racism, one in particular called Project South. And then I wrote Muscadine during that period. And I wrote Chuck Will's Widow. And it was really because my band and I were all sort of separate. So we wanted to just work through email and, and digital recordings and just trade things and create songs just kind of for fun and to keep the thread going of our yeah. band. And then when the lockdown sort of was coming to a close in some ways, I booked a studio and said, let's just, I've got, I, I had all these songs written and we, I booked a studio, you know, a few months in advance. And then we worked on, we did pre-production through emails and we just, I would make a demo at home because we had the, we had the structure now for doing that. I'd make a demo at home, send it to everybody. People would put their parts on and we would like do the arrangement via via um, email and like changing things we have we would have one central file and we would put new parts in and out and then when we went in the studio in Nashville we could easily just do it live and go to tape and not you know just live to tape and not have to spend all that time figuring out how to play it um because we had done so much of it digitally at home so so I, a lot of it was created 
during even lockdown time. And then kind of as soon as we could safely do it, we went into the studio and we even, I mean, it's funny. And I think we tested for COVID every day, even while we were working, because it was still quite like, it was quite prevalent down here in the South. So, you know, we had to be careful still, you know, it was still yes. like a thing. And, um, but we did, we tested every day and luckily no one had to be thrown out of the session. It's interesting. You, know. you did so much uh, pre-production and, and work on it. Cause I know black Sabbath on their first ever album. I think they'd record, they played that album so many times. They just went in the studio and just went bang done. And you, that was a very similar times, you know, frame. You, you just kind of didn't mess about. You didn't have to, stop and start you just went in the studio and was it nine days you recorded the whole album yeah yeah and but but with the caveat that muscadine tear it down and and chuck will's widow already those were not done on tape and they already had a they so it's really just seven songs because those three structurally were pretty much done and i actually I, I, the work that I did on those was more like a digital thing because I had a band called I'm with her sort of rework Chuck Will's widow completely, but they couldn't come to Nashville. So we took everything they did and put it to tape and then mixed it. And Muscadine, we just didn't even change that song. Just, it, it was like the original and we transferred it to two inch tape and then mixed it off tape and tear it down was digital. But Alison Russell I wanted her to sing a verse, so I got her to do that when she was in L.A. at some somewhere. So it was really seven songs that we went live to tape with in nine days. And right. it was it was cool. I mean, it was it wasn't that hard to do because we like you said, we knew the songs. But there were a few moments like we had a string section for one song. So so <laughs> we and we were all playing at the same time. So I had to figure out like where to put everybody. And somebody was in the bathroom and somebody was over here and, you know. But it was cool. It was like a, a, it was sort of a day long thing. And like once we got it together, we all knew what we were doing, but we had to learn to do it together. And once we did it, it was really just a matter of me getting the take that I liked, you know, so making everybody do it a bunch of times until I could sing it right. Um, probably, you know, but like certain songs, we just knew them so well that we got in and just on the third take, we had it. But we had a banjo player who plays in the band when we record records, Allison Brown. And so she came for part of the sessions and recorded live. And Sarah Jarose came and did mandolin live. And um, Gabe Dixon did all the string arrangements and he played live with us. And Phil Cook played live with us, who plays keys for a cup for like the gospel song. And we had a gospel group come in, just three women also record live with us. So it was quite, it was, it was a lot of a, logistics like we had to sort of we had a you know a spreadsheet of <laughs> what song and what guest and and then the producer who's one of my best friends you know he was really strict and you know you you have this much time to get a take before this person shows up for the next thing that we have to get ready for is that so, brian's brian spicer yeah right so and he he he's does actually he does the front of house sound for tedeschi trucks band so that's his his wheelhouse and and their studio engineer who goes on the road with them, but also does all their records and runs their studio, Tedeschi Trucks Band. He did all the engineering on this and also mixed it at at Susan and Derek's studio. So and I was with him. But like the recording part, you know, it's the recording's pretty it, to me is like so fun because it's like you go every day 
you don't know what's going to happen necessarily, even if you all know the songs. New things happen. You change things because they don't sound right when they go to tape and things like that. So that's really fun to me. And then mixing is is fun, but it's quite laborious when you mix to tape because you have to be, everybody's got to be, like we had me and Bobby and Brian all in the studio together at Sue and Derek's studio. And we have to move the faders while the tape's running, like old school, you know. And if you mess it up, the whole mix has to start over. So I, I was quite flabbergasted because I kept like missing a mute or doing this or that, you know. And yes. I was just like, oh my God, I'm like the dumb musician who cannot do this, you know. And and but it was but it was a great experience. I mean, because it felt always like a group effort. And so we were always like a team and we were always in the moment and nothing. You know, everybody had to kind of root for each other, you know, because if you had any dissent, it would mess everything up. Oh. So every so it was really nice for that reason, because, you you know, like if you had a a beef with the drummer for a minute because of something, you kind of had to fix it right away, you know, and and it's and bands, I think, you know, even bands that don't get along when they start playing together, everything goes away and the music is you're serving the music. Yes, you know, and your drummer so, was um, on this was Jim Brock. Yeah, he's great. Yeah, did you? Because yeah. the drummer, I, I didn't realize this until you know the, doing this show for quite a few years now. That that the importance of the drummer is just everything, isn't it? It's just like, and and I've spoke to quite a few drummers who have just kind of had breakdowns and have had a disastrous <laughs> life ever since because the click track <laughs> and stuff like that and. <laughs> You know, it's just, it's not good, is it? It's not easy. And sometimes, you know, the atmosphere in the studio can be the producer's obviously not happy with that drummer and he's going to kind of destroy them from from the story that I've heard. They're just going to reduce them to this kind of quivering mess and then they leave the band and they get another drummer. <laughs> it's it's just awful. But Jim Jim obviously coped with all this quite happily. Well, he Jim, the, funnily, I mean, the thing about Jim is that he... He sort of runs, he's, he's the oldest member. He's 70 years old. He's been playing forever. He's played every kind of music. He's a, he's a masterful drummer. You, I mean, his feel is unbelievable. And he, he kind of runs, you know, it's not, he reduces us <laughs> to quivering idiots or whatever, you know, like he can get on me all the time about tempo and stuff. And I just sometimes I'm just like, oh, I'm going to start crying. He's just like making me feel so like he doesn't yell. He just looks at you a certain way. And you're like, ah, he's looking at me that way. And we all have this real reverence for him in the band. He's with we've been the guys in the band. We've all been together nine years. And Jim is like the he's the one that we all want to please. <laughs> you know, <laughs> So he's in a different position for most drummers. He's he. um and he's a producer on other people's records, so he knows about production. But everybody, we kind of answer to him because he is the heartbeat of the band. Yes. And he's very wise. And, you know, there's been times I've argued with him about, like, how fast or slow a song should be. And he's always right. It drives me crazy. But I'll listen back and I'll be like, oh, my God, he's totally right, you know. And so we learn to trust him, you know. And that he's the guy that he's the wise one in the band yes. that we trust. Because it's an yeah. amazing band that you've got. You've got Jeff Fielder, who was who'd worked with people like you know Mark Flanagan, Mark Lanigan, and, and yeah. Duff McKee. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, and then you've got Daniel Walker, who was in Heart and worked with bands like that. So it's an amazing lineup. I mean, the experience that you all must bring to the studio and songwriting 
It's fantastic, isn't it? And then you've got these guest singers on on the album as well. Which um, when do you decide who you want to work with on that front? You know, on the singing front. I sometimes it's when I'm writing the song. Even I'll be thinking of like someone's voice, and it helps me finish the song. It's like a muse in a way. Um, for someone like Brandy Carlisle, when I wrote the song Subway. It really is a tribute to a DJ in New York that died very young a few years ago from, I mean, she was in her fifties, young to me, but from cancer. And she was an amazing person, had so positive and just kind of a light to all of us. And Brandy was one of her favorite musicians. And um, so when I was writing the song, I was like, oh, I'm going to definitely write this towards Brand knowing Brandy would be really great on this and so she did sing on it uh for phil cook <coughs> phil is a a guy from the south i don't know if you know him but he's played with a lot of he he's kind of like the under he's like the key to a lot of people like he's he, he's played with justin vernon a lot in their childhood they grew up together he plays with the blind boys of alabama megaphone he, he does all his he does his solo stuff now, but he's he's just this guy that is steeped in music and he plays keys and guitar. And I've always had him on my solo projects. And um, he is pretty amazing. And I wrote a song, a gospel song called North Star, and I couldn't finish it. Musically, I was missing some chords and some voicings that I just couldn't get right. And I had brought him into that. So he's so I, he really co-wrote the song. So of course I was thinking about him. Um, but yeah, Alison Russell was a, she was someone who I had already recorded the song and I, and I saw her play and I had seen her before and I was a fan, but it was just one, one show I saw and I was like, Oh my God, I want her to sing a verse on this song. I got to go back and get her to sing that vocal. But when I wrote from this room, I never finished it. And then I finished it thinking about it being as a duet and Natalie was who I really wanted to sing with me. So, you know, I asked her and she did it, which was great, you know, because we know each other, but we're not, we don't see each other all the time or anything. Yes. And then uh, instrumentally, uh, Alison Brown is a banjo player. I've been playing with her for a long time off and on. And so I do write thinking about the breaks that she'll be playing <laughs> Cause she's so good, you know, and I could just hear her in my head. So, um, so, but the vocal guest, I'm, I'm, I pretty, I pretty much have either the specific person in mind, or I know that like, for instance, on North star, I really want, you know, a trio of gospel singers to sing this part kind of thing. So sometimes I have to look around for who's available and, if I know six different people that can do it, which one of them has the time kind of thing. Yeah, because the, the album has, you know, it, most of the songs have got quite a political, cultural sort of reference point as well. So you obviously aren't short of things to write about still. So how do you manage as an artist to, 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 to channel that kind of creatively rather than just getting more and more kind of stuck or blocked or trying to make it, good as well as kind of bringing the message over i just wondered how you managed to navigate that bit well I, I mean i'm not sure i don't always navigate it successfully i know that i i just you know i have a lot of moments where i'm writing and i'm just like oh that's so didactic and 
it's not right or it's too uh polarized and not like this real i mean i always have this feeling when i'm writing stuff that has a social justice sort of heart in it that's coming from my experience lived experience or something that i also need to figure out a way to also bring in the other information i have which is the other side of the coin and it may not be somebody i agree with but i want to i always want to bring in that that i don't know it's like another element of almost like so people can understand some kind of empathy or maybe not empathy but sympathy of where someone might be coming from even if they're really wrong and off the mark because i think we need to understand each other to like solve any problems especially in the south so i think i just start from the perspective of like the humanity of everybody and that kind of is where i work from you know my own shortcomings especially when i'm right because i write a lot about i have in the last three country records written a lot about my struggles as like the the Southerner who's always trying to reconcile the, my past and maybe the things I didn't know, you know, when I was growing up compared to what I do know now and what I'm still learning. And so I'm always trying to take myself to task to a certain degree, me representing all the people I know that are like me, you know, that are white Southerners that need to like wake up and, and even those of us who think we know, and then we don't. So I think I come from just humanity and what's, what is the hu human in this story? You know, whether it be the person that does the bad thing and you're trying to understand why, or whether it's you and you, you're trying to figure out like why you came to where you did and what the conclusion is. So yeah, but there's, there's never a shortage though. I, I, sometimes I think, sometimes I do think like, Okay, I, w I don't want to write about social justice all the time, <laughs> but I end up doing it even in a song that's supposed to be about something else. It creeps in. And so sometimes I try to force myself to stay away from it when I'm just as an exercise when I'm writing. But it's su such a dominant thing in my life that it's very hard for me. But, you know, but then I think like, you know, I wonder like if Billy Bragg sits around thinking that or if, or if he just writes the song, you know, I don't know. I got to talk to him about that sometime because I do know him. But, you know, I think like a Rage Against the Machine, you know, did Zach De La Rocha like say to himself like, oh, I shouldn't write about the Zapatistas for the 10th time. He just did it, you know, which is why he was great. But for me, sometimes I'm like, I just want to write a song, a love song sometimes or like Chuck Will's Widow, which is more like a try to be positive in these dark times song, you know, um, but not with specific political reference references, you know? So I guess, yeah, it's, I don't run short of topics, but I do try to, I do go through these moments when I'm just like, ah, I'm sick of myself and I want to like <laughs> yeah. find something else to write about, you know? I know. But one thing that I've come across quite a bit, you know, being of, of that generation and in the eighties, and sort of meeting a lot of people who, you know, were politically, you know, from the left and Socialist Workers' Party and feminists and gay rights and et cetera, et cetera. But one thing that a lot of people are now struggling with and have just almost said, I just don't want to get involved, is kind of gender politics. It's it's how are you managing? Because in the you look back and God, that was quite straightforward, wasn't it? You know, now <laughs> it's just become incredibly complex. <laughs> that you just think, oh, my God. You know, because I was just thinking the other day you'd have – you know, like I, I suppose I was a part of a quite a, a hippie scene, and you'd have, you know, a, you know, women's camp, 
or you have a women's sweat lodge or you have a women's event sometimes you know kind of individually or that within an event you know people would just say oh you know we would like to have a women's sweat lodge tonight and you go oh that's fine then off you go but but gender politics has become so kind of like you know it's like wow where do you start and 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 that's quite exhausting and tricky I don't know how have you managed to sort of navigate that kind of interest and world I think for me it's it's easier because I have I I struggled myself with my own gender sort of fluidity I'm 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 a very like masculine woman but I'm not you know I'm not I'm not I don't have the kind of dysphoria where like I'm I feel I don't feel at ease with my body but it's for different it's for a lot of different reasons you know it's because of misogyny and kind of women as they age you always feel not beautiful you know and so is that so for me it's like am I at odds with my body cuz I really am so masculine that I'm in the I present in this I have a female body but it doesn't feel right with my male psyche sometimes hmm. or is it because society has put this thing on us to think that women aren't as important or beautiful as men in some ways. So I've always struggled with that. And so I have an empathy that's already built in, you know, and I've always felt somewhat on the spectrum and the fluidity of gender of like, well, we could just be anything, couldn't we? And it's okay. And I've never really thought like it's, we need to label ourselves so specifically one thing or the other. And I think that's what we're trying to go towards. You know, I think the gender identity politics is not just about getting it right of like they or she or him or, or boys spell different ways or women spell different ways. It's also about us trying to go to a future where we don't have to have all those things, you know, where we can just be, I'm human, you know, and be curious about what each other are, you know, without the labels, though. And so I think, but I think we're in a period where we need to have the labels because we're in a social justice movement still. Mm. And so I sort of already have a built-in kind of way of relating to it because I'm part of it in some ways. But I do think we get mired in identity in a way that's, that keeps other people out. And I do worry about that. And so I try to work towards us just relating to each other in a human way and kind of being bold about asking questions of each other and being curious. Because I think people do get scared of like, am I going to say the wrong gender, you know, and everybody has to put a she, her, you know, thing by her, their name or they, them or whatever, because people are scared that they'll address someone wrong which is an important step towards understanding that people aren't just this or just that. But it also does scare the bejesus out of people because I know that I have like older friends that are just like, they'll whisper to me like, does that person go by they or she? And I'll be like, just ask them. It's okay. Like you can <laughs> ask, like that's the whole point, right? Yes. So it is, but I mean, you know what, to me, like the bottom line of some of this is we are still dealing with massive amounts of sexism and massive amounts of homophobia. And the reason why trans women have such a hard time is not just because of transphobia, it's because of freaking sexism to me. That's yes. how I, I mean, I feel strongly about that. I feel that like when you, even in the old days, you know, when all, they had all the pride parades and everybody would be like, 
you know, the trans women can't be in the front of the float because they're too flamboyant. And they'd be all saying this stuff. And I'm like, but I think there's an, I, I understand that you don't want to be so flamboyant that you turn people away from gay politics. But like, these are like, you need to honor the people that stood up at Stonewall for us <laughs> because they were the transvestites and the trans women that did. And they're the ones that were on the front lines and they still are. And so I think we need to find a place that where we understand that a lot of what we're reacting to is misogyn is like a misogynistic sort of perspective of women not being as beautiful or special as men. And it's, we still struggle with it, you know? And I mean, in the States, it's just like, you know, we can't elect a, a female president. We can't, you know, we can barely elect senators and Congress people, you know, house of representatives and everything. So, and the, Heads of all the companies are still men and the gatekeepers are still white men. And it's just, you know, for us, it's on and on. Yes. And so I'm always like the root of all of this is the feminist movement that a lot of people have forgotten about, <laughs> you know, because because <laughs> it's like too many waves of feminism. And now everybody's like, ah, I don't want to deal with that anymore. No, it's, it's, there. It's, it's still important. It's so important. That's so important. Yeah, no, it's it's just interesting because I just know friends who have done everything they can to try and say that do the right thing, not just say yeah. the right thing. Just find that the whole thing has just become so complicated now. And conversation, debate has has just kind of been a bit shut down. So I think that's why a few people have felt a little bit defeated by the whole thing. And well, also I think don't let people shut you down, I would say too. I would say like if you're coming from a place of like honest, just like love and curiosity. There's nothing wrong with like, just, you know, we're all learning. Like we're all making mistakes with each other all the time in, in the human world. And with us, a lot of that goes with race down here because everybody gets scared because they're going to say the wrong thing. So they don't say anything or they don't participate. Yeah, And it's like, because sometimes they get shut down and it's like, you know what? It's, it's wrong to shut somebody down. Like if someone's really trying, you yeah, know, absolutely. like help them learn. It's it's okay. And yes. I'm always up for helping people learn as far as my own world of gender and sexuality and feminism and all that. It doesn't ever, like my mom asks me questions all the time and I'm not going to like shut her down. You know, I'm going to be like, well, look at it this way. And, you know, like, you know, but I know, I know exactly what you're talking about. Cause I have friends that go through the same thing. I mean, I have a, a lot of the guys I play with. You know, they're like straight white guys in my band and they just get confused and, you know, they'll say something and then they'll realize it offended somebody and they'll feel really bad about it and feel like, and I'm like, just don't worry. Just like, don't worry about it. <laughs> like, just, you know, you, you know, you, you learn from every experience. It doesn't mean you're a bad person. Yeah, absolutely. And just, um, I mean, just two things. How are you enjoying slightly different here you're running the record label is does that still give you lots of fun and yeah and sort of... yeah yeah uh, the only thing i don't the only bummer is that i don't have time to put other people's records out right now because i'm just putting my own out and i have a dream of like doing an archival kind of thing you know where i have these you know records that i discover that need to be out in the world that aren't you know and i get them out there so it's like a, a dream i have so i think no, I love, I love like the, not the business. It's like business, but it's like, it's more like, like what you say. It's like archiving and creative sort of endeavor of like getting music out to people, you know? And yeah, I love it. Yes. 
And if you could have whispered something to your 16-year-old self starting out after all these decades and experiences you've had, is there anything that you'd have thought, oh, yes, even if that 16-year-old might have um, ignored you <laughs> or not listened, <laughs> is there anything that you'd have thought, oh, yes, that would have been really handy, actually? I would have told myself to spend more time learning how to play my instrument <laughs> and practicing and less time making it all about myself. You know, I think that I tripped myself up, you know, I was angry, bitter way before I should have been a teenager, you know, and it kept me from actually learning what I should have learned. Yes. And I think I had to wait. A, I was a late bloomer. I had to wait a long time to find myself. And some of it's not my fault, but a lot of it is, you know, <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's what I would say. Yes. It's kind of interesting. The choices we make and the decisions that have such an impact and, and such a, um, you know, what, where we go forward to from that point onwards is quite interesting. You can come back again, but often, you know, it, it, you know, a, a mindset can have quite a big impact for the yeah. next few years. And um, yeah, it, it's interesting. So um, anyway, but look, oh yeah. And just, I mean, do you have another tour or more work that you've got planned for next year? Uh, I'm doing the solo stuff I'm doing is all going to be over here in the States. I'm just, I'm doing the South in February and the, and the East Coast in May, and then I don't know when I'm going to do other stuff, but Indigos are touring over here. And then we're, the August, the summer of 2024, we have a plan to go over to Europe and play some festivals, but also come to the UK and do some dates. So that's what we're aiming towards, because we're going to get back together with our band and two of the players live in are British, Carol Isaacs and Claire Kinney. And then, uh, uh, yeah, I think that's the only people that are going to come from England, but, um, and Brady blade comes from Sweden, so he'll play in the band, but we're going to, yeah. So anyway, we're going to have the band over here for the States and do like a band tour, which we haven't done in years. And then we're going to take that band and do some stuff over there and probably like, a couple of festivals and then we'll do some uk dates and maybe some ireland dates too or something that's probably that's what, gonna that, be yeah so yeah so one thing that you probably noticed in the last few years and it couldn't have been just during the pandemic but so many books came out didn't they people were, were writing books like you never believe have you have you sort of archived all your work and your life i just wondered if you in eventually you'll think yeah i'm i'm gonna do a book on your own <laughs> self or the band or just yourself and your life in music oh my god i'm a, i'm i'm not okay yeah i mean we've we've done this we did a tum emily and i are working on a tumblr blog actually that's just pictures and writing like we basically i are i give her a bunch of pictures from my archives and i say okay write about this and it's like one year and it's just like write are your what are your thoughts about this set of like 10 photographs and then we each write something separate from each other and then we posted it on tumblr and we're up to about 2009 i think from 1981 and that's kind of the sort of you know the thing we're doing right now but someone is making a documentary on indigo girls and she's and it's done it's going it's 
going to Sundance and I, I mean, it's not going to, it's applied to Sundance. It's applied to South by Southwest. It's applying to festivals. She's got a rough cut. She did a movie called on her shoulders, uh, which was a great movie about Yazid, a Yazidi woman and her, everything that was so hard um, in Kurdistan. And it's an incredible documentary, but so she did this thing on us and that's going to come out next year. And then as far as a book goes, I, Emily, Emily has talked about it. I, I really have so much reverence for writers that I just can't bring myself to write a book about us. <laughs> I just, <laughs> I just, I don't even want to have a ghostwriter. You know, I just feel like I just, I love, I'm a voracious reader and I love really well-written books. And when I read a badly written autobiography about a musician, I'm just bummed. Yes. So, and I'm not a great writer. So I feel like we got to figure out like how we would, how would we sort of archive our lives, you know, in a way I, I, we definitely have archived a lot. I have, we have everything, but this documentary is the first step in kind of trying to remember stuff, you know, Yes. and what happened and when, and the Tumblr blog also is a way that we've collected our thoughts in a way that's not so much pressure, you know? Where we yeah. can just write, you know, where we can write in our own voice and it doesn't have to be like perfect um, and all that. Yeah, you don't have to get too angsty. You can just put it yeah, out yeah, and yeah. be fantastic. Oh, well, look, that's amazing. I'll have to have a look at that, actually. But I noticed you've got quite a few dates, haven't you, for the rest of this month in America. So, um, well, I hope they go really well. And into Thank December. My God, Thank you. It's very exciting. That, that's Christmas. Oh, my God, New Year's Eve as well. That's fantastic. <laughs> Are the fans in America quite different to the ones in Europe and the UK? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Well, in a good way. I mean, the American fans are, can be, well, they run the gamut because it depends on what region you're playing in, you know, like when you're in the South, a little bit more you know, chaotic and rowdy. And, but that's what we're used to. So we're good with it. And in New England, people are more polite in we find when we go over to England and the UK that we well we just love those audiences so much and people listen in a different way um a little more critical in a constructive way but like you really feel like people are listening just really listening I don't know how to put it there's just and the interviews are everything's different the press is different um it's really refreshing and it's more challenging, you know, because there's like uh, just the questions are often like much more, uh, much smarter <laughs> and wittier. And you're just like, OK, I got to make sure I'm my head is adjusted for this because it's a different vibe. And of course, there's great questions in, in the States, too, and great journalists over here. But as a whole, we find the audience and the press that we do over there really challenges us. And makes us think about where we're coming from and what we're talking about. And and just musically, we know people are listening so hard that we just are really much more, um, well, we, we appreciate it so much. And it makes us kind of on our toes. So when we go to, when we go play away from the States, it's a, it's hard, you know, in a good way. It's <laughs> yes. very, it, it makes us like all right we gotta like really rise to this occasion it's not like we we're lazy over here but maybe it's just what you're used to you know we just 
we know the language over here. We know the we know the tone and the vocabulary so well, so we can kind of live it in a way that's that's just it, it doesn't rattle us as much. And I think it's good for us because we when we go over there, we have to we have to think hard. You yes. know. Well, and I think I'm, good. I think when you go through phases, you just kind of get an album or film or book, and you in the UK, you just kind of literally just live with it for such a long period of time you know everything about it and and you've read the lyrics and you've you just lived yeah it's just become so important and I think we put a lot of meaning I'm sure it's the same in every part of the world but I do sort of think we, we do get very excited actually kind of quasi kind of religious experience isn't it really yeah. I love it I love it <laughs> I, I mean I love it for every for every musician that goes there because every musician I talk to that plays over there, especially in England, is like, I don't know, they just have a sort of brightness about them when they come back because the way that their songs have been received is so deep, you know? And so it's not it's not just a singular experience of us. Yeah, you're right. It's a lot of my musician friends that tour in England, especially in Ireland, they just, in Scotland, they, they you know, it, they just feel the satisfaction, I guess. Yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah. Well, yeah. look, this has been fantastic. Thank you ever so much for this. And if you want, yeah. I can always um, send Angie a link and she can have it. That's and great. And, and um, you can always use it elsewhere. But this has been cool. fantastic. So thank you ever so much and best of luck for the next two months and um, into the new year. And, yeah, just really love the album. So You're amazing. Um... You're, you're, <laughs> such a, you're such a great interviewer. It's just so nice, you know. I just feel like we've been talking to each other and it's been great, you know. It's been, yes, it's been yeah. great. But look, have a lovely day. Oh, you yeah. too. So whereabouts actually are you? Because I got I live off. I live in the North Georgia mountains. So if you went if you were looking at a map and saw Atlanta and you went straight up 75 miles, you would see a little mountain range called the Appalachian Mountains. I live right at the foothills of those. Right. Yeah. In the woods on a river. So I have all I can see is 80 acres of woods around me and I can hear a river. <laughs> that's wow. what I have. Yeah. Beautiful. And I have a nine-year-old, a nine-year-old child and a wife. And that's my life. And eight, seven dogs and eight cats. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> How many cats did you have? Eight cats eight and seven cats. dogs. That's a lot of animals. We're know, cat right? people, but um, but we just have two. And to be honest, they're quite a handful. <laughs> seven. I oh, mean, cats they're all... are they're yeah. their own people. They're you cannot domesticate a cat. No, it's, it's like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's quite interesting, isn't it? Yeah, when yeah. you bump into your cat, it feels like a celebrity you've met on the stairs <laughs> or on your bed, isn't it? You know, you feel so honored. You, know, you have to come always negotiate with a cat. You know? <laughs> know, really. That's great. That's so seven. true. Oh, that, would, that would be fun. God, that sounds like a great home. Gosh, yeah, it is. It is excellent. Well, look, take care and you too. Take care there. See you later. Okay, bye. Bye bye. Thanks, David. And that was me in conversation with Amy Ray, uh, talking about her life in music, uh, the Indigo Girls, and also the new album. Do check it out. If It All Goes South is available from all good record shops and also available online. Do listen. It's a classic. Anyway, this has been The C86 Show. I'm David E. So if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. And all these shows have been archived. It's true. You can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. Just do C86 Show. Anyway, have a great week and stay safe. <laughs>